prophet Isaiah in the 52nd chapter of Isaiah in verse 7 writes the following. He says, how lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. The world longs for peace. The world longs for peace. And yet it is so elusive. The politicians will promise it, but can never deliver it. Most famously on September the 30th of 1938, the Prime Minister of England, Neville Chamberlain, came back from his meeting with the Chancellor of Germany, Adolf Hitler, and announced that they had arrived at a an understanding and a negotiation that would bring peace in our time. Less than a year later, Germany invaded Poland and the war began. The uh, songwriters and the poets speak about peace, but they can't deliver it either. I'm reminded of the 1969 anthem of the American anti-war movement written by John Lennon, rather interesting song, actually it's a bunch of gobbledygook with one refrain that is repeated over and over, which is all we are saying is give peace a chance. I think about the bumper sticker that you see now and again those people who plaster bumper stickers on their cars. The bumper sticker that says, Visualize World Peace. I don't know what good that would do. Even the prophets of old, the ancient prophets of Israel, who had become so corrupted that they were prophesying for their own gain. When they preached peace and prosperity to the nation in the midst of its sin, saying, peace, peace. But God says they have healed the brokenness of my people superficially. There is no peace. And the Babylonian captivity soon followed. The world longs for peace, but they're looking for it in all the wrong places. Open your Bibles to the second chapter of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2. And we are returning again this morning to a message we began last week entitled, Overcoming Ethnic Tensions. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through the end of the chapter. Overcoming Ethnic Tensions. Last week we noted that ethnic tensions have been part of the human condition since the Tower of Babel. That truth is vividly on display in the cities of our nation And in the nations of our world, there is anything but ethnic peace. 
In the ancient world, there were no greater tensions than those that existed between Jew and Gentile. Their animosity toward one another was real and it was deep. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 1 and in verse 16 that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Greek first, or the Jew first rather, and also to the Greek. The truth of that statement that the gospel is the power of God manifests itself really in the power of the gospel to overcome the ethnic tensions that rocked the ancient world and rock our own. It is only the gospel that can bring real peace. It is only the gospel that can bring lasting peace. Listen as I read beginning in verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances." so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then... You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit." We noted last time that in this passage, Paul shows how Christ permanently overcomes ethnic tensions. Permanently. And he does it through the gospel. And it's important for us to see it, to understand it, to believe it, and to apply it so that these different ethnicities that exist here at Foothill will never become the barrier to the fellowship of the gospel at Foothill Bible Church. So we began last week, and we said as Paul shows here in this passage how Christ permanently overcomes ethnic tensions, he begins with the Gentiles' former plight in verses 11 and 12 where he calls upon them to remember what they once were, 
who they were and what was their condition. Not individually, separate from God, dead in trespasses and sins in which every individual is conceived and brought into this world, identified with Adam in his sin. But something more than that, that as a, as a people group, they were separate from God. They were separate, he says to them, both surgically in that they did not bear in their own flesh the mark of circumcision, the sign of the covenant of God. And they were also separate theologically in verse 12, where Paul delineates five theological disadvantages of the Gentiles vis-a-vis the nation of Israel. He says they were separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth or citizenship in Israel. They were strangers to the covenants of promise. They had no hope in the world, and they were without God. A desperate, desperate place. And then Paul uh, Paul gives us God's decisive intervention here in verse 13. But now. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. It is a startling transformation. It's it's as startling as the the transformation that Paul notes up in verse 4 of the same chapter, where he's speaking there about those dead in their sin, where he says, verse 4, but now being rich in mercy, Because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, we have been made alive together with Christ. Individually, formerly dead and without hope, but now made alive in Christ. Here, formerly alienated from the nation of Israel, from the people of God, we Gentiles without hope in the world, our ancestors, pagan idol worshipers. But now, we who were far off have been brought near. Paul highlights here the the dramatic and decisive intervention of God by which Gentiles, once separated from Israel and her God, have now been brought near. How? How were they brought near? They have been brought near, verse 13, you see, by the blood of Christ, By the blood of Christ. In other words, the the benefits of Christ's sacrificial death are now theirs by their union with Christ. A union that God predestined before the foundation of the world, according to chapter 1 and verse 4. A union with Christ brought about individually by their believing upon the Lord Jesus Christ, chapter 1, verse 13. But in a corporate sense, They have been brought near now because of what Christ has done and that what Paul will explain to us in this next section. How were the Gentiles brought near? In other words, how did the blood of Christ draw the peoples of the earth separate from God near to him? And it is that question that Paul takes up in this next section, verses 14 to 18. Christ's amazing accomplishment. And that's what I want to focus on with you this morning. I want to look in detail with you at Christ's amazing accomplishment. Paul has focused on the plight of the Gentiles. 
And he has spoken of how God in his, in his decisive intervention has changed all that. And now Paul turns ex- exclusively here in verse 14 to Christ and his work. Jesus is the, is the subject here. He, he appears through the verses 14 through 18 repeatedly, both by name and by reference of pronoun. It is all about Christ and what he has done. Verse 13, you who were formerly far off have been brought near. Why? How? Verse 14, for he himself is our peace. The answer to the question Paul gives us in the verse part, uh, first part of verse 14 here, it is, for he, because he himself, that is Christ, is our peace. You Gentiles have been brought near because Christ is our peace. Paul is emphatic. Notice it here in verse 14, where he says, he himself. He doesn't say, for he is our peace. He says, for he himself is our peace. In other words, not that Jesus brings peace, which he most certainly does, but Jesus is peace. For he himself, look at it, is our peace. Said another way, peace is a person. And his name is Jesus Christ. His name is Jesus Christ. That ancient prophet Isaiah spoke of him in chapter 9 and verses 6 and 7 where he writes, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. No end of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. His name is Peace. The angels announced this Reality at his birth, where it's recorded in Luke chapter 2 and verse 14, when the angelic choir there to the shepherds out in the field at the time of his birth said, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. Christ himself promised peace to his disciples in John 14 and verse 27, there in the upper room on the night of his betrayal, where he said, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. And peace was his first words to them following his resurrection. John 20 and verse 19. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, When the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. Peace be with you. Well, 
What is this peace that the Bible speaks of? What is this peace? In the Old Testament, it went by the name Shalom, peace. Biblically, peace denotes wholeness or well-being. In the very widest sense of the term, wholeness or well-being, in the the very broadest and, and widest sense, Peace is not merely the cessation of hostilities. Biblically speaking, peace is a a comprehensive term for for salvation and life with God. The very fullness of life. Peace has both a horizontal dimension. In other words, person to person. Human to human. And it has a vertical dimension person to God. Christ's amazing accomplishment is that he, through his cross, established peace in both realms. He himself is our peace. And he has brought peace to both the horizontal and to the vertical realms of human relationships for those who believe. For those who believe. Look at verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. By his death, Jesus brought believing Jew and Gentile together as one. He made both groups into one, Paul says. In other words, he overcame the ancient animosities that had divided humanity for millennia. And he formed these two groups, these two ancient enemies, into one people of God. One people of God. How did he do it? How did he do it? Paul says he did it by abolishing. By abolishing something. The word abolishing, kartagesis is the the Greek word. It, It means to render ineffective. To make inoperative. To make powerless. Christ abolished the greatest obstacle to the unity of Jew and Gentile, which was the Mosaic Law. The Mosaic Law. Particularly as it was expressed in its detailed holiness codes. This law of Moses, as it were, was given by God And it was given by God as a good thing, intentionally to separate, to regulate, and to preserve the Jewish people as a kingdom of priests. Exodus 19 and verse 6, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. This kingdom of priests had a mission, and the mission was to represent God to the Gentile nations. But they failed their mission. 
And this law of Moses designed to separate, regulate, and preserve them as this special people, this this kingdom of priests had become for them a a source of spiritual pride and self-accomplishment. Paul uses three metaphors here. Three metaphors to, to describe the source and the strength of the separation created by the law. It had become a barrier, verse 14. It had become a dividing wall, verse 14. And it had become a source of enmity, verse 15, or hostility. And it separated you from Gentile. This divide, this, this separation, I think is, is symbolically well represented, or perhaps I should say illustrated, by a literal wall that did exist in Paul's day. There was a wall located there on the Temple Mount that separated the court of the Gentiles from the temple and its precincts. The Gentile people could not come close to the temple. They could only come so close. And then there was this barrier, this wall, barricade. This barricade had, had signs posted on it at regular intervals. Signs that were written in both Greek and Latin. And they read as follows, I quote, No foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure. Anyone caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. How would that be on a Sunday morning, right? For the neighborhood. Post that one out by the street. How different it had become. hmm? By the way, uh, you'll remember from Acts 21 when um, Paul had returned to Jerusalem to bring the, the famine relief for the believing church there in Jerusalem, he was accompanied by Trophimus, the Greek. And there was a false charge insinuated against him that he had brought Trophimus into the temple precincts, that he had penetrated the barrier with this Greek man, and that led to the riot, of course, which led to Paul's arrest and final Roman imprisonment and and his all-expense-paid vacation to Rome. It all originated because of the charge that he had brought somebody across the barrier. They were that serious about it. Paul says here, verse 15, that this barrier, this dividing wall, this enmity... Notice, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. So he defines it for us here. He says that it is abolished in his flesh. In what way? In what way did Christ in his flesh, in other words, in his crucifixion, make ineffective or inoperative or powerless the Mosaic law? In what way did he do that? Because that's Paul's contention. Now, that's a big question. And it's too big a question 
to seek to try to fully and satisfactorily answer here this morning. So I am going to resist the temptation to launch on a rabbit trail that would take us weeks, if not months. So instead of trying to really provide a a full-orbed answer and a what about this and a what about that, because there is no end to the books and articles that have been written about this very question. In what way did Paul abolish the law? Or excuse me, did Jesus abolish the law? But I will say this. Let me simply state this. The death and resurrection of Christ brought an end to the old covenant and ushered in the new. The death of Jesus Christ brought an end to the old covenant and ushered in the new. How do I know that? Well, I know it for many reasons, but not the least of which is Jesus' own words in Luke 22, where in Luke 22, there as he celebrated the first communion with them, He says in verse 20, in the same way he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. It is the new covenant. The death of Jesus Christ, and when we say the death of Christ, it it presupposes his burial and his resurrection because they in one sense are all interrelated. They're one event linked together. It's impossible to break the chains between them. So it is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that brought an end to the Old Covenant and the Mosaic Law which governed the Old Covenant. And it ushered in the New. Having fulfilled the law's demands perfectly, On behalf of his people, Jesus Christ abolished the law completely, rendering it inoperative with regard to its function of regulating the relationship of God and his people. Perfectly fulfilled the law. Even in his crucifixion. Paul notes that in Galatians 3 and verse 13, where he says, Speaking about Christ's crucifixion, he says, Christ redeemed us, verse 13 from chapter 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, Deuteronomy 21. He fulfilled the law perfectly, including its curse. Paul is very, very sure of this reality, by the way, very sure. Over in Romans chapter 7 and verse 6, he says, We have been released from the law. We have been released from the law. Chapter 7, verse 4, You were made to die to the law. So we have been released from the law. We have died to the law. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 5, where Paul says, We have been redeemed from the law. 
We have been redeemed from the law. In Romans chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, we are no longer under the law. He has abolished the law. We've been released from the law. We have died to the law. We are redeemed from the law. We are no longer under the law. You put that all together, and what place does the law have in the life of the Christian? That's the big question, isn't it? So are we saying that the Old Testament, in which we find the Torah, the the law of God, that it has no place? For us, could we, could, we, could we thin out our Bibles and eliminate 39 books? Hmm? Far from it. Far from it. May God forbid. The law reveals the mind of God. The law reveals the mind of God. And even though the specific application of that truth may well have changed, it is in the Old Testament, as you read, study, and ponder, that you will come to know the mind of God. We know that Paul doesn't disregard the law. In fact, in this same book over in chapter 6, In Ephesians chapter 6, in the first three verses, he cites the law. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. He goes right to the heart of it, into the Ten Commandments, doesn't he? And he brings it forward. So Paul obviously believed there was a place for the law in the life of the Christian. That at the same time, he is emphatic in strong, strong language to say that it has been abolished. We have been released. We have died to it. We are redeemed from it. It is no longer over us. We have moved, beloved. Our address used to be here, and it's now here. The old covenant was once in the play, it is now the new. The old has passed away, behold, all things have become new. There is no going back to the old covenant. Galatians makes that very, very clear. Now the results of... Christ abolishing the ancient barrier here of the Mosaic law was not simply to create a climate in which Jew and Gentile could could get along, right? Let's just get rid of all of those weird laws. You know what I'm saying? Like the stuff I can't eat and the certain clothes I got to wear and, you know, all of this kind of stuff. If we could just eliminate that stuff, you know, we could be friends. We could be friends. If If you could just eat sushi with me, we could be friends. Right? I don't like the stuff, sorry. No, we got more people down here who don't like it. But for the sake of a Christian fellowship, I would I would eat it. Yeah, I know. No class. 
But it's not about creating that climate. It's, it's not about just eliminating the, you know, the little cultural differences between us that hold us apart. It is way more profound than that. Notice that the abolishment of the law doesn't mean that the Gentiles turn into Jews. And it doesn't mean that the Jews turn into Gentiles. What it does mean is by the exertion of his creative power, Christ formed an entirely new class of humanity in which the ancient boundaries no longer matter. In fact, again, we're beholding to his words in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28 where he says, In this new man there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. No longer Jew or Gentile, but now one new man, a new class of humanity. There are three kinds of people in the world. There are Jews... There are Gentiles, and there is the church of God. There is the church of God. Notice what he says here in verse 15, where he says, By abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is contained in the, command, or, uh, in the law of commandments contained in ordinances, in other words, in the Mosaic law, by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the Mosaic law. Why? So that, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. To make the one new man. But it doesn't end there. It doesn't end there. Christ's purposes in abolishing the law also includes the establishment of peace vertically by reconciling this one new man to God the Father, verse 16. Thus establishing peace and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. Now think with me on this. It's probably easier to understand how the Mosaic law could be the source of hostility between Gentile and Jew, right? We've talked about that. But it is also the source of enmity or hostility between God and man. In other words, that the, the, the hostility between God and man is, is tightly bound within the law of Moses as well. When all humanity, living under the power of the world, the devil, and the flesh, encountered the holiness of God codified in the law, the inevitable result is hostility, God's hostility. This enmity, by the way, here, to reconcile them both, right? Put to death the enmity. The enmity spoken of here is not man's hostility to God, but God's hostility to man. The Mosaic law represents the holiness of God. It, 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 it codifies the holiness of God. 
and was a source of God's hostility towards the Gentiles. Were they under the law in the same way the Jews? No. No, God had written in their hearts uh, his, his creation law to be sure, but, but the law still represents who he is and what he values and what he loves and what he hates. And the Gentiles living lives contrary to all of that in their ignorance was like a finger in his eye. When Christ died on the cross, he set the law aside. He abolished it. He, he rendered it ineffective. He nullified it. And in doing so, he created a new humanity. But also, he nullified or rendered ineffective the legal case against humanity, all of humanity, codified in that law. In other words, we could say, in effect, that Christ's death killed God's enmity towards us Gentiles. And in fact, that's exactly what Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, reading here from the ESV. He says, "...and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him..." having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He canceled the record of debt that stood against us, Paul says, with his legal demands. He he set it aside. He nailed it to the cross. He executed it. It's another metaphor, the rendering it ineffective, powerless, abolished. What is the net effect of all of this? The net effect of all of this is by the sacrifice of Christ, the new covenant blessings of peace can now be proclaimed far and wide. Look at verse 17. And he, that is Christ, came and preached peace to you who were far away, Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, Jews. Because of the work of Christ on his cross and his fulfillment of the law, the setting aside of the law, then the message of peace can be proclaimed from one end of the globe to the other. The Jew and Gentile can come now before God on the basis of the work of Christ without any hint of favoritism, equal basis. All right, verse 18, for through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. No more Jewish priority. No more sense in which All of those things, look again back up to verse 12, all of those things that once were true, separated from Christ, meaning that you you had no knowledge of the Messiah who was to come and what he would bring, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. In other words, that you were cut off from the blessing of God and his community of people, 
Strangers to the covenants of promise, the meaning the Abrahamic covenant had no hope held out for you, the Davidic covenant and the coming messianic king, the new covenant and the promise of the law now within, written on tab- on, not on tablets of stone but in the human heart by the indwelling spirit. You don't have any of that. You have no hope in the world, no hope of a resurrection, no hope of a return and a, and a righteous kingdom to come and peace to, to, to govern the earth. Without God in the world, you don't even know who He is. All of that now has been removed. And together, the one new man, equal access by the Spirit. These are the blessings, beloved, of the new covenant. These are the blessings of the new covenant. And this is what Christ has accomplished for you and me. There is a lesson, I think, that comes out of this text. The lesson is, I think, that peace and the law are intimately tied together. I mean, that's what Paul seems to be doing here, don't you think? That peace and the law are tied together. For those of us who are united with Christ by faith, His fulfillment of the law becomes our fulfillment of the law, and His peace is our peace. But for those who are not united to Christ by faith, for those who are not in union with Him, then their failure to keep the law fully results in their alienation both from God and from each other. Why is the world so messed up? Why is there such a lack of peace? Why are families fractured? Societies ravaged? Wars constantly? Why is there no peace? I mean, if we all visualized it hard enough, it wouldn't come. And we could all stand around and hold hands and and sing John Lennon's inane song, and it wouldn't bring it. And we could elect the, the most distinguished statesman of our ear, and he couldn't find it either. Because it is only found in that one who is peace. He himself is our peace. It's Christ. Your life is a turmoil this morning. It's because you either do not know Christ Or you do know him, but have forgotten what you know. There is no peace outside of him. Marriages that are in trouble, parent-children problems, divisions within a church, 
problems in our community. The gospel is the answer. It is the only answer. Otherwise, it's peace, peace. But there is no peace. You believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You are at peace with God, or better said, God is at peace with you. And you are at peace with your fellow believers. Paul will go on later in this letter to apply that theological truth and say we need to act like what's true of us. Beloved, because of Christ's amazing accomplishment, we who were once far off have been brought near. It also means that Israel's ancient benediction of peace now belongs to us. Bow your head, please. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace.